Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoiseshek podcast. You know what I'm about to say, but please hear me out. Don't skip forward, listen to me for a minute. We need your help. We have no ads, we have no sponsors. I say it all the time, we don't interrupt your podcast with adverts that are sponsored effectively initiatives by the government of Ireland. I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were interrupted mid-sentence by an advert effectively paid for by the Irish government. Where do you think inequality and poverty comes from? Christ almighty, the, like, the whole thing reeks. Podcasting was supposed to be the Wild West. It was supposed to be a bit more punk rock. It was supposed to be a free-for-all. But there's become so many gatekeepers out there. And you know who I'm talking about. The likes of Go Loud and Acast inserting themselves into everything and throwing money at people to do podcasts. That's not what we do. We try to platform voices that you don't hear in the mainstream, have conversations in ways that aren't interrupted by that, all that bullshit, frankly, and be activists, because we are activists. We do it because we care. We do it because we want to make a difference, even with this tiny little platform that we have. So if you find yourself listening regularly and you're getting something out of it, please give something back. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise The link is at the top of the podcast you're listening to right now. We want to limp on into 2024 to continue to be able to throw the odd haymaker and be able to continue to have the conversations like the one you're about to listen to. Thanks for the support. Thanks for sharing, liking, subscribing, recommending. But if you throw us the price of a pint just in the run up to Christmas, it would be fabulous. So one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and folks, we're back speaking to uh, a gentleman who's come on the podcast several times and we've always been enlightened. Uh, and But this time he's, he's actually, Martin was the guy who really wanted to get this done because the, there was a recent piece in the currency by Professor Stephen... Uh, by head of department, Professor Stephen Kinsella in U- in University Limerick, uh, and I'm and I'm going to I am going to leave that little uh, uh, that little error of mine. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm going to leave yeah. that in. Um, Stephen, first of all, thanks for coming back on. It's good to see you. And as I said before, we came on air. You must have a Dorian Gray poster somewhere, or a picture somewhere. You're looking younger by the day. I'm glad one of us isn't as worn down by this miserable life lately. How, how are you keeping? Well, I mean, as you said, I'm a head of an academic department. So if you're not worn down by that, I don't know what's going to do to do it to you. Um, it is a test of, uh, some, somewhat, um, something of emotional, emotional and physical resilience, but it's fine. It's, it's, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, honestly, it's, it's kind of a pleasure to, to serve your colleagues, um, most of the time. Uh, that, uh, that, that office with the, the one of my colleagues who got a, they, he got a, he, he described, um, being a, uh, uh, so being a head of an academic department as a fire hydrant, uh, about 5% of the time you're there to put out fires and, uh, about 95% of the time you're there to get pissed off. And, and uh, I think that's probably fair. Uh, I think it's also might be the only time that I've actually been on this podcast with my actual voice. Every other time I've ever had like a chest infection or, you know, I was trying to do oh, my yeah, best no, Batman that, impression. When we spoke in, so I think it was nice. June, you were, you were smothering with it. You were pr- bravely battling the man flu. I know, I believe you only got over it there a few days ago, you know. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's been a long um, road to Listen, be, look, can we just go to the the gig economy and um, some of the stuff that you've, you've written about? I know Martin will, and, um, will, will want to talk to you about it, but the, your understanding of, of where we are now and what changed with the judgment in the Karshan case, what, how, how, how things now look are, are framed in your opinion, Stephen? 
Well, just for listeners, the uh, judgment here is that uh, from a period of, of about the late 1990s to a couple of weeks ago, essentially, it was possible to classify certain workers as not really workers. And that's over. And the reason that it's over is because revenue sued a uh, a company, the company, the holding company that runs Domino's Pizzas um, for unpaid um, uh, labor taxes, particularly PRSI and others. Um, and they uh, won the first judgment, they lost an appeal, and then they appealed that to the Supreme Court, and then they won there. What that means effectively is they can now use this judgment to go after other companies for similar payments, um, and that then therefore increases the implied labor cost of all kinds of um, gig economy workers. Um, one of the things I was really keen to kind of highlight in the piece um, in the currency was that people think about gig economy workers as like, you know, pizza delivery people and, and stuff like that. But actually, it's not like that. It, there's a, a vast swathe of worker types to whom this um, appellation pertains. And one of the things that I think is very important here is that this really, while it is an economics, an economically relevant story, it's actually, it plays out much more in labor law and labor regulation. And um, that's why... And like I look in the piece, I look a lot at, at the research of what the gig economy does and its its economic impacts and stuff. And there are some really really positive impacts. It's really important to point out, you know, like there are lots of people who really want that flexibility. It's really shown that when when um, workers, particularly uh, of a ter- certain type, have that flexibility, they actually earn more and report themselves as being happier. Um, however. There's all sorts of workers for whom the gig economy is actually a, a worse option, um, and it, it it just masks a kind of exploitation of labor. The key differentiator in both cases, the research says, happens to be education. So if you're educated above a certain level, the gig economy is kind of fine for you because you probably already have another job and you're earning an extra few quid on the side. Happy days. If that's not the case, and you're what are what are called lower skill jobs, which is a phrase that really really annoys me, I have to say. Um, uh, only, only a ranking, uh, like that produced by economists would produce, would, would have economists as high skilled workers, but whatever. Anyway, the, the, um, uh, quote unquote low skilled workers with lower levels of education tend to report, uh, lower levels of, of happiness, lower levels of si- life satisfaction, higher levels of anxiety. And obviously the returns to them are lower and the returns to their companies are much higher. Uh, I give a lot of examples in the piece about Uber and, and others, but I, like, I really do want to like call out the fact that like, um, one of the leading authorities in this area is actually Martin. So, uh, your co-host who, who's done a huge amount of work on this and whose own uh, research in this area and, uh, uh, very much informed the piece and, and, um, in particular, informing me about just how long running this has been. So this, so I think people tend to imagine that this sort of started in 2008 or maybe 2010 with the rise of Uber and other ride sharing platforms. And in fact, uh, as Martin, Martin's work shows, it's, it's not, it's much, um, it's a much longer running thing. So yeah, we're, no, no, I, don't I think know, that's, I think, I just, I think what you've given us, we'll, we'll get to the future in a minute, but I think that's a really good overview. And it's, it's really important because, and to give Martin credit, thank you for saying that. He, 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 he I absolutely, I think he, he deserves that. But I also, I also want to, want to say that on the, on the, on the, on the flip side, yeah, we all had that perception, Stephen, that it started with the tech 
companies, you know, because we didn't call it the, the, the gig economy then, we called it the sharing economy. We, um, and we, and we thought, you know, well, this is going to be, the, this is great. And as you said, it, it suits, but, but Martin, um, when you, when you saw the piece, I knew you were actually delighted that Stephen had written it. You were delighted. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm absolutely delighted. The question of the gig economy has been around for a very long time. And as Stephen said, it didn't start in 2010. In fact, um, when did the gig economy start it is a very, very good question. I would argue that officially, uh, legally, the gig economy started with Sandra Mahan, the Denny case in the famous uh, Denny and Sons First Minister for Social Welfare in the Supreme Court. Sandra Mahan was um, a supermarket demonstrator and she drove from, you know, home to demonstrate in a supermarket. She invoiced the employer. Um, they paid her uh, a fee per showing. Now, fee per showing, always assume we fee per, it's fee per gig. This is what they're trying to say is a fee per gig plus a mileage allowance. And so revenue had this um, obscure circuit court rejection of an EAT decision that they were using as a precedent to label all supermarket demonstrators as self-employed. And that was... uh, Sandra went to the scope section, which is the first line of, of uh, you know, am I an employee, am I not? It's an office of the Department of Social Welfare. And this is all they do. And they're very, very good at what they do. And I will always say that, you know, of everything that's out there, scope is the best. And they've stuck to their guns over 20 odd years. We wouldn't have this Carson decision only for them. And, and we need to remember that. So Sandra Mahan went to scope. They said, you're an employee, Sandra, you're not self-employed. And the Social Welfare Appeals Office, which hears cases de nouveau, which is really, really important, but they upheld the scope section decision, which was then appealed to the High Court, onto the Supreme Court, and the decision was made that the scope section was right all along. Angela was an employee. So Angela was the first gig worker, officially, legally. Now, it existed for years before. Revenue have always assumed the responsibility of saying this group of classes are, of this group of workers are self-employed, this group of workers are not. But you can't do that. And that's what Carson has said repeatedly. It's what Denny said. You cannot make group and class determinations on the insurability um, of employment of workers. And yet, as Stephen pointed out, since 1997, um, the, the Revenue Commissioners have done this in particular with delivery drivers. They have this agreement with the Department of Social Welfare, which was mentioned in the Carson case, and we'll come to that in a minute. But basically, Revenue have been told, no, you're wrong since 1997. Um, now but maybe properly. come to Stephen on this, because Stephen, you said the impact on employers now. We know what this means in terms of potentially, you know, uh, increased employers' PRSI, you know, um, uh, increased, you know, holiday pay, pension entitlements, all of these other things. But we'll be told that that's going to, you know, create problems for employers. It'll, it'll, it'll be bad for competition, and Ireland's competitive, competitive advantage in 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 the market will will be lost. What do you think when you when you First of all, look your personal take on that. What I've just said, and do you think that that um, that it'll bear out over the next couple of years? 
Well, I, I, I think what's important to note is, you know, we, if you have a, a single company or a number of companies of relatively small scale saying this will be bad for Ireland Inc., it, it probably won't be. You know, um, now there's probably maybe 10 or 15 companies in this, on this island. If you turned around and said they're, they're thinking of leaving or they're, they're in trouble, they're, they're having a bad day. We're all having a bad day. Then I would agree. Um, but actually, no, in this case, um, in this case, uh, there, and in the piece, in fact, I document what happened with a, with a bunch of different, uh, driving companies or delivery companies when they just left, the, they just left the country. You know, I mean, people, um, I believe it was Deliveroo left the Netherlands and they left Spain. And I mean, people are not like reducing their consumption of fast food in the Netherlands and Spain appreciably to reduce its GDP. Like, I think, I think both countries are going to be grand. And so, no, on that case, I, you know, uh, companies really enjoy playing the l'état c'est moi card. Uh, but it's rarely the case that that's true. What is absolutely the case is that there will be a class of worker who really, really wants this job, right? They want the delivery job. Um, and because the alternative, like, it's not like the, the alternative is a brain surgeon, right? Like the, the, the alternative is probably relatively less, less work. And so this, this prices them out of the labor market. Um, and that's a bad thing for them and their families. W what it does mean though is that every worker is treated in a kind of a minimally, uh, minimally, legalistically minimally, uh, coherent way. And that's a really important point to note. Uh, Martin mentioned, and he's absolutely correct. The real judgment being made here is by revenue about what class of worker you, you walk into. Those judgments having been made, then the question arises almost immediately. What, um, what is the level of applicability that they will, will judge the judgment to fall towards. So for example, they may turn around and go, this judgment really only only affects delivery drivers who drive four wheels. Okay, fine. Um, so so bicycle riders are not, or tricycle riders are not covered. So it's a that's a matter of judgment for the revenue, not part of their group. I can't co comment, but that's one thing. One other thing that, that's certainly true is that there's now no discussion about whether these kinds of workers are in fact employees. And so it will naturally change the nature of those businesses, which will m make them unprofitable. Um, going forward, what we always see in these cases is, is everyone adapts. Like the fundamental law of economics is people adapt, right? So firms will adapt. New classes of worker will be created. Uh, 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 employees will adapt. They'll find new jobs. You know, uh, the, the public will adapt. Someone will find some way to get themselves a pizza on a Friday night. Before the late, late, the late, late show, you know, that, like, it, I, I don't want to say it'll be grand because that, 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 that's not a fair point. The point is in ev in any equilibrium alteration, there are always winners, there are always losers. And in this case, it seems that most of the time the workers will be the winners. Most of the time the firms will be the losers. And there will be some workers who, who simply are not kept on and, and they will obviously be the losers in, in the change. Okay. I get let me just unpack a little bit of that. Um, yes, it's a, it's a fundamental change to the way both the Department of Social Welfare and Revenue have been addressing the issue of insurability of employment. Is it a matter of choice? No, it's not a matter of choice. One must fit the legal criteria. That's it, full stop. There is no choice in this. 
people tend to think that self-employment is a choice. No, it's not. You either fit the legal criteria or you don't. There is no other standard. That is it. And rightly so. What's the detrimental effect of having loads of people in a, a gig economy where employers aren't playing employers per aside. Well, the detrimental effect is a raise in the pension age. The detrimental effect is that it's de facto money going to employers that should be going to your PRSI fund, that should be going to your, like there's taxes and PRSI. And, and for most workers, it's about 30% saving for an employer to have a, a worker as a contractor rather than an employee. Do we have a particular problem with this in Ireland? Absolutely. Huge problem with misclassification of workers, which is playing out with the delivery drivers. We see it in RTE. We now have the um, home tutors, who we know are, are classified by group and class as self-employed, all of them. So you can't have that. And Karshan has pretty much said, no, you can't do this. But revenue well, and Martin, social welfare... Martin, you, Martin can I come in and just say... Very, um, very long time. Martin, you've just said that home tutors, we know about this now because of the, the things that have come come out. Have you spoken to people? We've talked to people and it's no about... That's the Department of Education ultimately have done this. So the state, the state are ultimately one of the that's main right. conduits for... Mm, yeah, but Benefic what, what would you, let's rewind the tape 40 seconds when points, you said it was yeah. RTE. And back to Stephen's point that he made at the outset, if you are part of what they used to call top talent in RTE, it really benefited you to have one of these contracts. It was much better off having, you know, um, a couple of hundred grand as a as a self-employed contractor for service to, to, to RTE, uh, as opposed to, you know, someone who maybe um, was on call and only got paid when they were on call and they were in a certain role. So, Stephen, it does break down financially that whereby... You think to yourself that I'm I'm coming in here and I'm I'm being treated the same as someone as top talent or someone who in in a, in, a, in the same industry, but a lot of the people at the lower levels have not been given the option to 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 opt into you know PAYE because this is just how we deliver to it and that's where the gig economy really its big success was saying sure this is just how we do things and we all shrugged since the since the 2000s and just said okay maybe this is how we do things um you know and we have to now Carson changes that surely oh it certainly does i mean like i, I think it, it is important as well to to note that like all of the research on this and i think i already said this it really does use education as the separating variable, right? So there's a bunch of workers for whom they're highly educated, they're really, they're really, uh, they're really well paid. They don't want, they don't want the, uh, the, the, they, they're probably already getting PRSI and POA in other places, right? Um, so, so for these people, what Carson will probably do is reduce demand for their services because the, their employer will have to, 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 uh, um, have them all as employees. So that will, that will probably, like, you know, Martin mentioned RTE, that will probably significantly affect RTE, for example. Um, moving to the lower end of the market, lower, you know what I mean? There's no implied value judgment here. Um, I really do think that you're going to see a bunch of businesses that had previously, um, existed with relatively low margins simply stopping. Like they won't, they, I, I, unless they find some creative way to reclassify drivers or whatever, or riders, etc., um, they are can, they are going to have to, in fact, 
Can I uh, come in on, on that, stop, Stephen? You know? Because I did forget to mention this. You say that revenue could take the view that this is particular to delivery drivers. You know, and they co- uh, that's what you've said. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of of employment as legislation. It applies to everybody across the board. And if you notice in the Carson, both in the Carson and Denny, there is, you can't make a determination on employment status based on job description. And you simply can't. The very fact that revenue and social welfare do this shows their deep, deep misunderstanding of what employment legislation is about. The same law that applies to a delivery driver applies to a lecturer in a college. And this is the way it works. So the fact that revenue and social welfare have been siloing people off and making individual group and class decisions is ultra-virus, has always been ultra-virus. They've been told so Ma- since Ma- then. No, no, no. Ma- no Ma- so the big problem for the state, which was mentioned with it. No, no, let me just get to the end of it, Tony. Let me just get to the end of it. The big problem for the state, which is mentioned in Karshan, is in section 278 of the Karshan decision. And it's quite a long decision. But it, here it says, because one arm of the estate state is doing one thing and another arm of the estate of the state is doing another thing, that the penalties for Karshan, both the legal costs and the penalties, may be reduced or may not apply at all. And I'd put it to you, Stephen, that was always the plan from Revenue and Social Welfare. Always. Going back to 1997, that was written into the plan that when all this went bang up, they'd point the finger of each other and say, you're to blame, you're to blame, and and the, the company would get away with it. Yeah, so I guess there's two points there. To, to Taking the second one first, uh, the idea of um, uh, government departments and uh, our state mm. having long-term plans, either either uh, beneficious or malicious, uh, strikes me as 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 uh, um, maybe they do exist, but I have never come across them. Uh, uh, I I I I don't want to imply that there's some level of of, of malcompetence or incompetence there, but. Um, Certainly, in my experience, public sector bodies don't tend to have that much. Um, they're, they're they're much more checker playing than four D chess. The second point, or the first point that you made, is about revenues uh, uh, choice or not, or or or, or lack of choice mm-hmm. about a, a particular um, occupation, a particular uh, uh, case. I think what's what I, what I mean here is I agree with you. The law applies to everybody and, and should. When the revenue chooses to take a case, they take a case for, against a specific firm uh, uh, or in representing a certain class of worker. Um, and when they decide certain things, they, they do so on the basis of case law, on the basis of custom and practice, norms, decisions, obviously legislation. Um, almost always, almost always, they're making a, uh, a, what philosophers call a cake-cutting decision, right? So... And they're never going to get it right. And even if they, even if they want to get it right, and I guess your, your, your argument is that they, that they didn't want to get it right. Um, well, it didn't benefit workers. It well, certainly fair, didn't fair, benefit fair. And workers. It clearly didn't benefit, certainly it didn't. I, I think what the data show clearly is it definitely didn't benefit workers for whom lower levels of education were the controlling variable. I think that's 100% true. What's, what's less true is if you take the total class of workers for whom the gig economy is, is useful and it's quite a large number. This is another important point that maybe listeners probably don't realize. It's just how big this is. Um, uh, the EU has a survey and there's something like 4.4 million 
uh, gig economy workers. I believe that number, excuse me, that number is correct. Um, across the EU, and there's 440 million workers or for uh, people in the in the EU. Like that's an extraordinarily large number for something that's supposed to be kind of temporary, flexible. You know, yes. do do it for a couple of months kind of thing. Do you know, like it's quite a big number. If you had said it was a million people, I'd be like, that's quite a big number. 4.4 million of the things that they can classify as gig. That's actually relatively large, I have to say. And so, you know, uh, 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 fundamentally, like, it is also, it is also the case that looking at some of these companies, uh, and I did for the piece, if you look at their profits, like, a lot of these companies are not actually that profitable, which is really interesting. And so one could make an argument. Uh, that Karshan, I, I don't know the people, I haven't, uh, so one can make an argument that they've got a really low margin business. And in order to stay in business, they have to pay workers less than minimum wage. That's right. Right. And if, if that is true and you believe that some work is better than no work and you believe that some cash flow is better than no cash flow, then you also have to make a judgment on whether Karshan should exist with its low margins because we're not talking about a massive, massive business that's making all the money in the world. Like, I think their total profits in one year were like 280 grand or something. Mm-hmm. This is not... <laughs> he makes Donald a loss. Like, well, uh, that's a different nothing. thing. Bad example. I'm just, I'm just thinking of people who state their profits. <laughs> but it, it, um, is yeah. a, it's a, it is a yeah. poor business model, Stephen, and it has yeah. always been a poor po- business model and it is really dependent dependent on exploiting the workers that's what it's really dependent upon yeah. is exploiting the workers if i could what the Karshan decision from my point of view has really changed is that now the onus is on the employer to show an exceptional circumstance that that person is an employee whereas up to this state up to this time the employees had to prove that they were an employee. But now the presumption has to be that you're an employee unless the employer can prove otherwise. Yeah, that's a really interesting interpretation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I take, like, like, no, Martin, you know a lot about just, more, just a lot more about One other point so Stephen think, made, think, and I think uh, it's really fair to, to, to put this to people because, you know, there are there's people working in the tech sector who who charge a daily rate on 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 on, a, on these kind of um, deals. They love these kind of deals. There are people who are working in our services industry with with these with these large contracts that are used. These contracts, some of them love these contracts. We know from experience that you know you might have Stephen. You might be in in a building there that has people come in and check your smoke alarm and fire alarms and with, with these companies that use these these third parties. And and Martin, you refer to it as the subcontract subcontractors subcontractor, and we know how this works. So so, so there is a part of this that gives people a certain way of 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 making things work. But I put it to to you. Stephen, now just just my final thing is for the future of work, as we talked the last time we spoke in June, we talked about just transition, making work pay and helping these things. We need to, we should be really using this as an opportunity to say, well, actually, now we know what bad looks like. <laughs> um, how do we, when we move it towards a green transition, and I know that's something you're passionate about, we have to make those jobs, make sure that they don't start to get classified into the, uh, as, and misused in, in that space. Well, I think one of the interesting things about the green transition is the their need for it will be so great that the wages will be off the charts, right? So, and I know this because 
I know this because I have to go out and, and, and find people to certify a BER cert and all this stuff at the moment. And A, you can't get the fellas and B, they're really expensive when you find them. So uh, I think we are moving into an era where demand for certain kinds of labor is going to go through the roof. Like I fundamentally believe, uh, like the economist Tyler Cowen, that in the era of AI, plumbers' wages will rise. I really think that's kind of important and it's a good hypothesis to, to hold. Um, certainly if anybody can find a plumber, let me know. Uh, um, I'm actually no, no joke. I'm waiting so long for plumbers. I'm actually genuinely thinking about going, just going off. <laughs> Qualpex is your friend. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> anyway, the point about all that is, um, <laughs> anyway, the point about <laughs> all of that is that, that, um, once people see that there's a real future here, they're going to flock to it, right? And I, I, I think that um, we are going to see much higher wages for people in the just transition, not lower. The question I have is, if that's for high demand stuff like, you know, certificates uh, and, and in solar panel installation and stuff, there's really high skill work. I, I, I uh, For other stuff, um, for other stuff, uh, one of the things that you have to guard against is as firms' margins fall because of things like climate change that they don't end up hurting their own workers as a result in order to stay alive and that's unfortunately been the case in almost every major technological change a great book for you guys to read uh, it's called power and progress by darren adamoglu and simon johnson i i interviewed johnson for the currency when i was at mit and uh you know, one of the things he was really clear about was like, yes, technological progress does rise all boats. Yes, it is really useful, but the 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 take the time it takes to do that is really long running. So, for example, the industrial revolution, the initial kind of burst of it, which we understand as the burst of it from the late seventeen um, hundreds up, uh, it didn't increase workers' real wages for seventy five years. So, when the average working life was twenty years. Like three whole lifetimes before people get a bit of a break on, on technological change. You know, it, it, it is absolutely the case that you need a really strong eye on workers and workers' rights because, and this will actually come out in the National Competitiveness Council report. One of the things that we are looking at in the future as a, as our population ages really rapidly is how to make those older workers more productive. That's going to be really, really, really complicated. Because a lot of these people haven't been to college or they were in college 40 years ago. And we have one of the lowest rates of lifelong no, learning. No, not, not everybody can start a, a really podcast big problem. Sorry. <laughs> well, just just before we wrap, a couple of things. Those low-paid workers where you're talking about, um, you know, non-college educated, that's called what revenue call those workers is Schedule D workers. That's what they call them, is Schedule D workers. You're all Schedule D workers. My interest in this, of course, Stephen, is that the department and revenue have been, you know, the misclassified by group and class. And it's absolutely certain that within those numbers, there are a lot of people who have been misclassified for a very big amount of years. And we've seen that play out in RTE. And they're the ones not getting recompense for, for what they should have got. Holiday mm. pay, sick pay, pensions, maternity pay. Now, the judgment in Carson is very clear that the Social Welfare Appeals Office has questions to 
answer. And it does say it in Section 278. And I really do think that the Social Welfare Appeals Office should answer these questions. Fundamental, a lot of money on the table on this. And these decisions should not be taken behind closed doors. They simply should not. It's too important to people and it's too important to the economy. I suppose finally to wrap it up, Stephen, from my point of view, there never was a gig economy. It never existed. It was a fiction of the Department of Social Welfare and Revenue's imaginations. They took the precedents that had been struck down in the Denny case, and they simply applied the exact same precedents in the same year, 1992, when they were first struck down in the Social Welfare Appeals Office, and just simply transferred them onto delivery drivers. There is no difference in the employment conditions between Sandra Mahan and the pizza drivers. None whatsoever. Put them down on paper beside each other. They're the exact same working conditions. The fact that it has taken 30 years for them to listen to Denny and all caution was was a restatement of Denny and told, you must listen. You must listen. Now I think we need big action on this. A lot of people owed a lot of money. And do we really need to retire at 68? No, we don't. Go get what you're owed. Oh, I'm not retiring at 68. They're, 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 they're taking me out. They're taking me out of the office. And I'm, uh, uh, there'll, be, there'll be claw marks on the walls, lads. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I really do think it should be, you know, pensions like that should be a matter of choice. And, you know, if, if there's employers haven't been paying up to 20 millions worth of, of PRSI, then do we really have a, a pensions problem? Is there a collection of employers PRSI problem that we've had all along? And I would say and have said for years, the problem is not pensions. The problem is they won't collect employers PRSI. Okay. Thanks for coming along, Stephen. Thanks for the chat. As always, really interesting. I loved, I loved your piece, a really insightful piece. And I think this will run and run and run, maybe not where I'd like it to run, uh, where the workers are most affected, but it is, you know, I'd love to be able to translate this stuff down so that I can explain it to delivery drivers and I can explain it to other people. But it is quite complicated. You can't get it across in 15 Really appreciate minutes. you giving Just us the time again, Stephen. It's always good to catch up. Um, and it's always it's always nice when, you know, people always think you get these... these um, what 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 are shared interests and we have a lot of shared interests and it's always been great and and to give you your due you've always been very kind to us with your time and 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 support we really appreciate it uh it's a, it's an interesting yeah. it's an interesting time and it's lovely to have a conversation and i hate to say this the whole last few weeks have just been miserable we've been talking about gaza every day we've been covering it in in such great detail um, so it's it's nice to almost have a conversation that seems oh. to be, and sorry, Martin, but something much less trivial, you know, uh, much more trivial, should I say. So so thanks for that. And thanks again, folks, for listening. Thanks, everybody, sharing, liking. Um, and we will continue to obviously cover what's happening in, in Gaza as we can. We'll talk to you all very, very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Tony and Martin, Martin and Tony, speaking to interesting people. It's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now. Uh-huh.